podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Kabaya. And this week we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Sarah Mimi. That's fun, Sarah. I haven't been able to introduce you as Dr. Sarah Mimi before. This is really fun. Sarah is someone I've known for a very long time, but currently she's an assistant professor of marketing at the College of Business at the University of Louisville. And so, Sarah, you started in that position in this past July of 2020. So starting a new position in the year of the coronavirus must have been interesting. You've been a, you're a behavioral scientist. So, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the work that we look at, we draw a lot on uh, behavioral analysis, the field of behavioral analysis. And you're in one of the sister sciences, uh, as Dr. Susan Friedman would refer to it. So your area of interest is that you study how people pursue goals. And that was something we thought might be really interesting to talk about. And then also how you handle conflict between multiple goals and how people manage their personal resources, you know, time and so on. And that's definitely something that I know horse people struggle with, you know, oh, I just don't have time to ride and to play with my horses. I I like to say that I come by my research interests honestly as a horse person. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And that you're currently you're teaching in the University of Louisville's unique equine business program. So that's another area that might be interesting to explore. And then you've done, uh, you were, when part of the time that I've known you, you prior to all your the graduate work, you worked in the publishing industry in an equine magazine, and you've been in marketing communications at Dartmouth. Uh, college and so on. But the area that I really want to explore is not the current area, though, though those are rabbit holes that I very much want to go down at some point. That conversation we had when you were visiting a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about control, that was so interesting. And the boundaries, and uh, I mean, that was just fascinating. That, that's called a tease. But the area that I, <laughs> that I really want to explore is your background as a horse person, because I think mm-hmm. you can really speak to some an area that many people struggle with, and that's you're originally you're originally from Vermont, and from a very uh, rural part of Vermont, and growing up with your own horse. You did not have access to a truck and trailer to be able to take your horses to riding lessons. So when you mm-hmm. came to, to our clicker training clinics, you were there not with your horse, except for, I think, twice I saw Polly. Twice. twice. Once I brought him to you and once you came, I brought you to me. Yes. Yes. So in all these years together, I've had actually two lessons with my horse with, with your you. own horse yes yeah and with so, my own horse yeah many people they'll you know I hear this over and over again but you don't understand I'm all by myself there's nobody near me yeah. I can't take lessons and and you've been in that boat mm-hmm. and yet you've managed beautifully you are a very skilled knowledgeable clicker trainer you did a beautiful job with Palio, who was a very complex horse. You have taught clicker training. And then there's another part that I also want to... So there, there are sort of three areas. When you, you lost Palio, there was that mm-hmm. sense of, I don't have a horse. Am I going to lose touch with the horse world? And how do you stay connected to the horse world? and to the clicker training world, and then also uh, the whole taking of lessons. Mm-hmm. And as a clicker trainer, uh, how do you take, how do you find people who you 
can take lessons from, even if they're not necessarily a clicker trainer. And then what do you do? How do you, how do you digest their lessons? What do you take away from lessons that are not taught by clicker trainers? What do you leave behind? And how did you manage to, to you've always seen to manage to find a way into Barnes and to be welcomed <laughs> into Barnes as a clicker trainer, which is really mm -hmm. neat because that's something else we hear a lot about of, oh, but I have to hide fact that I'm a clicker trainer. So, right. so where right. do you, where in all of that do you want to jump in? Wow. Okay. So let me recap. So if I'm understanding, so the first big bucket is this learning on your own. So being off on your own and being independent and learning and how do you, you know, do, do that. And then the next bucket was, I think I might've missed the middle bucket was staying connected to the horse. The Same. last one is the taking lessons and the interfacing with the mainstream horse world yes and we had the learning on our own and then the middle bucket was was i've just lost my horse but i don't want to lose i don't want and how lose. do i stay riding yeah, yeah. and and, and those it, are yes. alexis buckets because i have some buckets too okay, <laughs> okay. yes dominique what are your buckets and then well, i can try to sort of well because i know so if I understand correctly, you, you studied in behavioral economics, right? Uh, consumer behavior. So consumer behavior. So very similar to that. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about behavior analysis and your field of study and see, you know, how they compare. And the other thing is I'm very intrigued by, so you teach at the equine studies program at the university of Kentucky. And I uh, wonder University of Louisville, actually. Of they're, Louisville. They're... Okay. And <clears throat> what do you what do you teach? Sure. Um, I can answer some of I, I might open a parenthesis, Alex, just here, uh, which is that I, I can go down that path. I know we were kind of thinking some of those paths would be for another episode, uh, but I can certainly answer the, maybe do the short version of that answer. Yeah, let's do this um, as a teaser. Yes, do as a short, teaser. <laughs> do the short version because I definitely want to go down those rabbit holes with you. I think there is a wealth right, right. of concepts that you bring and ideas that you bring that we definitely want to explore. Right. But we thought we might start by really having you talk as a horse person and not right, as. Right. Yeah. So we, it's sort of like, which hat know, are you going to doctor, wear? Doctor, professor, PhD person. Yes, yes, yes. So we're, we're yeah. not okay. ignoring those, Dominique, at all. We're going to definitely no. get to them. Yes. <laughs> it's just so you know what's coming up and what's you can organize. Okay. Yeah, you yeah. can organize it's like, your... It's like we have a roof with lots of drips coming right. through. And we've got buckets all over the place. And, right. and we're, we want to fill them wonderfully yeah. and explore what, what each one has. So off yeah. you go. And yeah. And as I prepared for, you know, I like did the horse person bucket and like, okay, thought about that. So the other bucket I'll come back to, but so to answer those, let's see. Um, so yes. So Dominique, so I, my teaching, uh, so my job is uh, most of my work in my professional job now is in research. And that's my work as a behavioral scientist. And so about two thirds of my job is research, about one third of my job is teaching. Uh, my teaching, I'm in the business school and I'm in the marketing department. That's my primary appointment. And so I do some of my teaching in the marketing department. So I teach principles of marketing to business school students, which is teaching the basics of, uh, of marketing as a discipline to people who are going to go on to be practitioners in that field. So people who are going to have jobs, honestly, more like the job I had before graduate school, where I was a practitioner in marketing communications. Uh, and then because I happen to be at the University of Louisville, which has a program that is the only one of its kind in the world, uh, which is a program that's focused on equine business within the business school. They take advantage of my background and expertise and it's fun for me. And so then I also teach the marketing and communications focused courses within that program. So I teach a course on equine marketing and then I'm developing a course on communications, uh, a graduate level, graduate level course on communications for uh, people who are going to be leaders in the equine industry. And 
those courses are aimed toward people, uh, not toward learning how to be a trainer or learning about you know, behavior analysis and that kind of work, but uh, toward people who are going to be running, running the, the business side of the horse okay. world. So managing, mm -hmm. so what you used to, you know, so you used to do as, as uh, with Cavalia and what Alex, you do in your work and so many different flavors of um, jobs and roles and ways to be involved in horses from the business side. So that's my teaching. Uh, and then my research as a behavioral scientist, uh, as Alex said, my core research area is uh, in goal pursuit, goals and motivation, uh, which really is rooted in my interests in clicker training. So it really grows from that. Uh, it's not, not disconnected in any way from, from that original interest. And uh, what I'm particularly interested in is how people pursue goals. So things that matter to them, things they care about, things they value in their daily lives, how you, you pursue that. Uh, and especially how do people manage and respond to conflict between multiple goals that they have that then compete for their personal resources. And that could be your time, your money, your attention, your energy. And so, as I said, I like to say, I come by this interest, honestly, as a lifelong horse person, because, you know, you have, I have lots of goals in my life. I have my work and my career and I have my family and my friends and the horses and even other things besides horses. I'm interested in, in all of those things. You know, there's only just so much time in a day, only so much money you have to spend and energy and attention. And so sort of how do you allocate your resources? How do you manage them to, um, ideally be successful in achieving the things that matter to you most. So that's, that's in a nutshell, what I, what I think about a lot of the day. Okay. We're, I'm going to let you guys talk about horses, but we're coming back to this at we, some point. We are. Okay. We are, we are <laughs> okay. definitely, we are definitely coming back to this. So, all right. This is, <laughs> we are. And, and you know, Alex, what you're, what got me into this too. So I don't know if you want me to tell that story here. Absolutely. You're my origin story. <laughs> Do you want me to just tell my clicker training origin story? Tell your clicker training origin story. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, first of all, congratulations to you, Alex and Dominique on 150 mm. podcast episodes. Thank which you. Is astounding. Uh, I was so surprised. I've been listening to it all along and I was so surprised to hear that on the last, these last episodes with uh, Susan Friedman. And so that was wonderful. And um, this has been such a nice way to stay connected to your work and, and other people in the field, even as I've been moving around and doing so many different things. And it reminded me that that is not the only um, anniversary right now. So this summer, right about exactly now is my 20th anniversary of discovering clicker training. Wow. Uh, it was 20 years ago. It was 2001 that I, that I found my way to your work. So, uh, and that is uh, not quite, but pushing half of my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So if you want to chew on that for a moment, that's a, um, and, and what brought me to it uh, was uh, a horse, my own horse, a very special horse who you've known. Uh, his name was Palio. Um, I owned his mother, who had been my horse since, she, since I was 11. And I uh, bred her when I was an undergraduate in college and uh, bred her to a Tricaner stallion. She was a wonderful thoroughbred mare, absolutely great horse. And uh, she had a, a colt, Palio. And he was at the time, he was two, I think. Yeah, he was two years old. And he was, I was completely outhorsed by this young horse. Um, I'm sure a story you've heard before. So I had been riding since I was 10, 11, since I was a young girl. I'd had my own horses, I'd ridden green horse. You know, I kind of was for that ride anything that comes yeah. my way, kid. So I'd had my own horses, I'd ridden other horses, I'd um, done some pony club stuff, um, you know, had some instruction, not a whole lot because I was out in a, a fairly remote area, but worked on farms. And so I've you know, been around, but, but I hadn't trained young horses, you know, in any systematic way. And this was just, he was, um, uh, he was just a lot of horse. <laughs> he was big and powerful. He didn't really speak horse. Um, his mother, he only was really with his mother and one other horse as a young one. And he 
uh, she didn't impose boundaries. He just, you know, kicked her and pounced her and tossed her around the pasture. And she just said, oh, that's fine. And um, so he was just, he was a lot and he was uh, getting to be dangerous. Uh, and I didn't have any help locally. I didn't have the wherewithal to just sort of send him off to a trainer. And I was really just trying to learn as much as I could and figure out. And I think as many is true of many people when they find clicker training, they're just out, they have a problem and they're looking for solutions. And I ordered a stack of uh, training books off of Amazon, you know, in the early days of Amazon and yours was one of them. And um, I'd never heard of clicker training. I don't even honestly know why, what algorithms, I don't even know how it found, you know, I found it online, but I did and ordered it. I think I thought, oh, it's different. Let me look at that. And I cracked it open and it was just, um, you know, it was a world's divide moment in my life. Uh, I remember really clearly, I mean, I remember that day, I remember just reading it and, and it was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, this is just like, wow. You know, I just, I just was an epiphany. It was, it was what really, really, really grabbed me about it and has kept me in it in your work and in the field more broadly was that it was, it wasn't just, okay, if you want a horse to do X, you know, to do Y, you do X. It wasn't, it went beyond technique and it was about the theory of behavior and why, you know, why horses do what they do, how they learn, why we do what we do, you know, how behavior works, what really is underlying it. And that just was just completely hooked me. I was so excited and I thought it was so great. And, and it also aligned with my values and my, you know, the way I felt about horses and as a horse person, I mean, they were always my friends first and my, you know, performance partner second. And so uh, I remember I just read the book and then ran out to the barn and was like, started trying to train this horse. And I don't know, it made a total mess of it. And I think I, I had wildly unrealistic expectations about what a first session should look like, but, you know, but, but I wasn't deterred. And I happened to be living in Vermont at the time, not very far, luck would have it from you. And I uh, found my way to Equine Affair that fall and found my way to your booth and um, met you and bought every book and DVD you had at the time, which was not very many. No, it was not, like, I think two videos, VHS and, you know, yeah. one, one or one book and a booklet maybe and talked with you a little and then got to a clinic and, you know, that, that sort of got the ball rolling. So that was the beginning of it. But that was also the beginning of my path to becoming a behavioral scientist. Um, so that was my door into uh, the field that I'm in now, even though it's, I'm not studying animal behavior, uh, that was my entry point. And actually that, a very, very short version of that story was uh, the opening paragraph of my application essay for graduate school uh, seven years ago or eight years ago. So, and it worked. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I got into <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's so neat. That is so neat. And and so um Palio, you you and you did a beautiful job with Palio because he was not an easy horse. For one thing, he was very big. Um, he actually wasn't that big. Everyone thinks he was huge. He was like 16, maybe 16, one, if you're being generous. But Big personality. Wanted, yes. And he was just <laughs> like, he filled the room. Yes. Everyone who ever met him, even the people in the boarding barn I laid her had him and who saw him all the time would say, well, he's so big. And it's like, actually not, but he seemed big. He, he was big. He was, he big was big to be around. Yes. He was, yes. Yeah. Yes. Sort yeah. of like Robin, who definitely has that presence and, and fills the space. Right. So, yeah. 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 He was, um, he was very, very clever. Um, he was an open book, you know, he, but he was, he was early on. I mean, it's interesting that I haven't told this talk about him like this in a long time. And of course this is now 20 know, years so, ago. Yeah. It's a long time <laughs> ago. It wasn't, you know, yesterday, but, um, but he was at the beginning, he was, he was, I mean, he was aggressive. He, a lot of his behavior was quite aggressive toward other horses. Um, you know, he, he was, 
a tricky horse uh, to to be around. But I think the what I found so it, it was not like I just snapped my fingers and started clicker training and he sort of miraculously, but but in not really that long a time, if you think about the arc of horse training and how long you know a, a, a young, relatively inexperienced trainer and handler um, with a young horse who'd never had any other kind of handling or professional training out on our own with only you know a few books and a handful of clinics and there wasn't really even anything online in those days um within i'd say five i mean i was certainly riding him and he was just like a a perfectly reasonable riding horse four or five years after i first found clicker training and um he passed away unfortunately when he was 11 um so much sooner than we would have hoped but at by that time I, I, I can't almost even believe to say it, but I'd given like beginners had sat on him and people would come to visit and I felt very comfortable letting other people ride him. And um, he was, ne he was never going to be someone's 4-H project that you would just, you know, throw on a trailer and take anywhere and do anything with. I mean, he wasn't really going to ever be that horse, but he, he did actually blossom into being, uh, and I'm really a great ambassador for clicker training. Um, people who were around him in the barn, he was in a public boarding stable uh, later in his life, really liked him and enjoyed him um, and found him to be a great character. He was so engaged with people. Um, this barn also had a therapeutic riding program and their arena was an outdoor where they would do the, the lessons for the therapeutic program. And my horse would be in his field, which was close to it. <laughs> he would always be up at the fence, just like watching the lessons. <laughs> That was his movie. And, you know, of course, like all, many of our clicker horses, you know, you would go to the field and he'd be in the far end and you'd just call him and he'd come galloping up. And, you know, he was just really a, a great, great, uh, fun horse uh, and, and also talented. And, you know, if I'd had more time with him, I think we could have really developed. What about with other horses? Did that progress also uh -huh. or... He did, he did get better. Uh, it, he was, again, never a horse you would just throw in with any herd and without a carefree thought in the world. Uh, but he did he did learn uh, to speak horse a bit better as he got got older and got more exposure. And uh, so he did mature along along those lines and had some some good horse friends uh, again later later in his life. But it, it does <clears throat> what you are saying really clearly is that. Yes, you can basically on your own. You did you did come to the clinics and yeah. that's a that's a plus. As an auditor. As an auditor. Or as a right. non-riding participant. Right. I wouldn't say auditor. I don't think that represents the experience. No, well, it doesn't. But, but as a non-riding participant, you attend you were able to attend the clinics. And mm -hmm. uh and with the materials that were produced and uh so on that you were able to be very successful with polio that you went from I'm overfaced, I don't know what to do to having a horse that you could ride and enjoy. And and I think it says a lot that you could be in a boarding situation and people liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that they, they did, I think. That the training that he had uh, produced a horse that non-clicker trainers were going, Oh, this clicker training, I just, you know, it just makes my teeth grind um, that they, they liked him. And I think that says a great deal. So for people who are feeling on their own, right, I mean, it should, that should be really encouraging. And, and I will say right now, uh, because of, you know, what's happened with the virus and so on, sure. my clinics have all gone virtual. So this, right. this idea that, um, well, you know, I, I live off in the uh, wilds of fill in the blank. I'll never be able to get to a clinic, no longer apply because the mm -hmm. clinics are all online. So if, mm -hmm. if you've got an internet connection, you can attend the clinic. And what you're saying is that with those resources, that it is possible to be very successful with clicker training. Yay. Absolutely. Yes, 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 it is. It is. It is. It absolutely is. I think if I'm thinking about sort of what did I do? How did I do it? I mean, again, when I was 
in those early days, I, I had no, and I, I didn't have another sort of trainer or anyone else I was getting help with in any, so it wasn't just, I was on my own entirely at that time. Um, I'd had, you know, some prior training in, in my riding lesson and my riding life, but, um, but I was on my own. So it wasn't just on my own, the clicker training. Um, now the plus of that was no one was looking over my shoulder and telling me, do this, don't do that. That's, you know, uh, I was free to experiment and free to make mistakes. And I did make mistakes. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, if I had video, <laughs> I would cringe probably, but but you know, the freedom to make mistakes can be a very good thing. Yes. Um, yes. And so I think one thing for people who are feeling alone in this, I would say, you know, savor the freedom to make those mistakes. If that's the, the situation you find yourself in, you stay safe, keep yourself safe, use good judgment, but yes. you know, uh, you don't have to be perfect. Horses are incredibly forgiving. And um, so that freedom to make mistakes, actually, I think in many ways was a good thing because it's not only a freedom to make mistakes, you then take on a responsibility for your learning and your horse's learning that um, over the long run, if you stick with it, really benefits you. You know, you really own it. You own the training um, and it's valuable too. You know, it means so much more to you. So, yes. so those are good things. Um, I think if I were doing it now, there's so many more resources. So again, early 2000s, I mean, it did get some video, but it was still kind of not so easy to video yourself, but videoing yourself and huge, I mean, so I'd be doing video now. We didn't have podcasts, <laughs> I'd be listening to the podcast. Uh, you can find community online. Obviously you need to do that mindfully. You've had prior episodes about this topic of thinking, you know, being a selective sifter and who do you get your information from? And, but still there's so much community and support you can find yes. online. So you don't have to feel alone in it and you can get answers and get some feedback. You can go to online clinics. People can do, even without a clinic, they can do your online course. So yes, there is now, a, there is a system and there's structure and there is a community and resources. And so if you just sort of take it, you know, one bite at a time um, and, and don't try to take it all in at once, but just take one bite at a time and just keep kind of go to your horse, work something out. Go. That's how I would do it. If I were doing it now, I, I think I had a little bit more, more alone and bumpy path than, you know, necessarily one would have to have today. Right. There's so much more. Um, so I would do those things. The, the other resource I brought to it then that now I would struggle to do though, is I had time, you know, yes. in those days, I did not have much money, uh, <laughs> but so I didn't have that. I couldn't pay somebody else to solve my problem, but I had time. Um, that was before, you know, it was in this sort of moment, like lull of my life where I'd finished my undergrad and I hadn't really started, you know, my quote unquote real career. And I had, you know, so I didn't have a serious job taking up. It was, I had a lot of flexibility and time and my horse was at home. And so I was just out there all the time um, doing it and, and working at it. And that any, you know, it's deliberate practice. Yeah. And of course, I think that's a huge piece because people who are contemplating you know, oh, I've, my kids are getting to that point where I can finally have a, a horse of my own because I've wanted a right. horse since I was a child and I never could have a horse when I was little, but finally it's my turn kind of thing. I think it's really important to recognize and understand that horses are time demanders. They want us, <laughs> you know, in terms of it just, it takes a lot of, of commitment, time, energy to really have a full relationship with a horse. And certainly to, and certainly from a practical perspective, if you have a horse who, who's completely green or who has some, you know, more substantial um, training needs, I will say to the, the counterpoint a bit to that is that now that I am you know, the, the busy professional mom, 
with very limited time, I do still ride. I don't have the same, you know, I have a very different circumstance now, but I do still ride. And I have, I have still found that, you know, there's something to be said for quality. It doesn't always have to be every single, you can still stay connected and, and get a lot out of it and, and enjoy horses and do things that are positive for the horses you interact with, even if you're not out there six or seven days a week. So on the flip side, I wouldn't want people to feel discouraged from staying involved in horses because I think the far extreme is often people say, well, now I'm busy. I can no longer be at the barn six days a week. Therefore I have to give this up. Right. And that's how you end up where then it's 20 years later and you haven't even set foot on a farm for 20 years. No. And how did that happen? Um, and so I, I just, I wouldn't want somebody to hear that and say, uh, you know, it's all or nothing, right? I, right, I right, as a right. goal pursuit researcher, I, I, this is a little bit of the things I think about that, you know, there, there is a continuum of, of, of those things, but, but it's more about mm, having a, uh, taking some realistic stock of what, who are you? What is the horse you have? in front of you what is what are those training goals and given those factors you know is this a horse you know is this a six or seven day a week project or is this something where you know if there's an older horse who's well schooled and basically knows their stuff and is is you know a happy you can have a, ha a happy weekend warrior they still need care and there's all of that yes. obviously but um you know and, and and that's a little where I now have to look at things. You know, I, I still ride. I have horse friends. People sort of say, oh, would you maybe want to help with this horse or, you know, offer a project? And I'm like, well, I have ideas for that. But that's a six day a week project. And yes, and, and yes. but back then, those days, I ha I was the every day of the week. Yeah. So um, you had, you had you know, a I was complex there every day. six day a week horse and you right. had the luxury of being able to match your time with what he needed yes yes for the most part yeah 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 certainly so for the most part so that that was a big factor if i hadn't been done that certainly i would not have developed the the skill or the you know or he wouldn't have come up as far along in, in his yeah. training uh, without that yep so you lost him when he was 11 which yes. left you uh not just mourning Polio, mm -hmm. which was a huge hole. Right. But also, am I going to lose horses? And right. There are, there are many people, I think, who have been in that position. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I didn't, certainly didn't expect it. Uh, it was just a one day to, you know, I was at the barn and I actually had pictures of my last ride on him. It was a Friday or a Saturday and I had been out and had a lovely ride with a great friend and he took some lovely pictures. And so I have this you know, wonderful memory of my life. I was riding a bareback and doing all sorts of fun stuff and just had a wonderful day. And then the next day I got a call from the barn that he was colicking and it was just one of those you know, it was one of those colics where you don't put them on a trailer. You just, yeah. and, and he had colicked uh, six, seven years before and actually had surgery and then never had another pickup. And then, you know, and then, and we don't know why, but it was, you know, it was just, um, there was certainly no doubt. I mean, he, it was just the decision yes. to be made. Um, and yeah. And so then I, you know, didn't have him. Um, I did actually still have his mother. She was, somewhere north of 30 at that point uh, retired of course yes um I did still have her and uh you know I had lost my other older horse that same year earlier so I had gone from you know three horses down to one and didn't have the riding horse so I uh, yeah I moved my my mare his his mother Willow uh actually into a, a boarding stable as well that was closer to where I was living at the time so I could look after her um but she wasn't I wasn't really you know going to be sort of really riding her and, and even for clicker training she was mm, I think I don't know if it, I, I don't want to answer more if I, you know, project and say well she had Alzheimer's but she sort of wasn't really uh, she was sort of in a different you know she wasn't really interested yeah. she was kind of uh you know 
it wasn't what she wanted to be doing. So I, I respected that, um, but still had the connection with a the barn there, uh, going to take care of her and spend time with her. And uh, yeah, I didn't, I really did. At first I really just sort of thought, okay, well, how do I do this? I knew at that time uh, I was still working in marketing communications, but I knew I would be applying to graduate school. I knew that would entail moving to who knows where. I knew that would entail not having a real income for a number of years. I knew we might be starting a family, you know, so I knew this was not a time in my life to acquire a new horse as a riding horse, that that was really not something, if, if I had still had polio, I would have figured it out no matter, you know, Yes, no I wouldn't have what. sold him ever. Yes, I yes. would. He would have. I would have figured it out. But not having him, it wasn't. I wasn't going to to take him somewhere. And and then his uh, mother did also pass. About uh, she passed two years later, uh, but she you know she was uh, well into her thirties by that point. Um, so what did I do? I you know I had I was still in an area I'd lived for a long time. I had a lot of horse friends. I had horse friends who'd known polio. I had lots and lots of people trying to give me horses. <laughs> <laughs> I started counting at one point and it was, it got to 11. Wow. Like in the first month or so after he died. <laughs> Some of them were probably, I just, I just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the time, but um, I, I kind of just, I, I think I just stayed connected to the people I already knew. And some of them I had horses I had ridden before anyway. So I started to cultivate that a little more. And I think I just, I don't know if I did it really intentionally, but I just sort of gave myself permission to say, well, you know, now I'm going to go take some lessons. And like, can I find a schoolmaster somewhere? And and can I do that and and find other ways to, to stay connected? And, and I, you know, again, to your point, I mean, at that time, I wasn't really sure how that would go because I had taken this other direction with clicker training and that, tra- and I, but I just thought, well, you know, let's try. So I gave myself permission to do that both financially. I said, well, I'm not paying more anymore. So <laughs> I guess I can take a few lessons, right? Mm. And, and again, just, just said, well, like, let's just try this and see. And if something doesn't work or I don't like it, then I, I don't you know, have to continue. Um, so I was fortunate to find uh, a, a stable within some reasonable distance where they had uh, um, an older uh, stallion actually who was retired from competition and mostly retired from breeding and he was in his, well into his 20s and I was able to go and uh, take lessons and learn on this fabulous horse. Uh, his name was Moranio. He was at River House Yanavarians in New Hampshire, um, which was really a great experience and and I continued riding friends horses you know and then I think the 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 other moment came when then I moved for graduate school and I moved to a completely new area and I just thought okay now I don't know anybody and Hmm. I have to find all new connections and you know what is that going to look like and I really again didn't know how that might work but I I think I might even like zoom back because I think rather than getting too much of the details of sort of what I did or where I was, I, I think what I, I might like say to step back and say, you know, in thinking about what we talk about today, I sort of thought of a few like general principles around yes. this idea yes. that I could share. So I just, cause there's too many details and they're not always that relevant to other people, but you know, I, I sort of just kind of went along doing what I was doing and Basically, what I found after I moved to North Carolina for graduate school, I was just continually surprised by how many opportunities I had to ride, to ride different horses, to train, to clicker train. I really felt quite welcomed. And even with people I hadn't known for a long time, didn't have a long history with, and it was a really pleasant surprise. And I actually, for prepping for this, I kind of said, oh, let me like go back through. And I started trying to like, remember all the different horses and different people. And there are since, since Polio passed away, 18 horses that I've had a substantial training relationship with. Wow. That's a lot of horses. That's for a, a lot You know, busy amateur who's yes. off mostly working and having babies. <laughs> Yeah, 18. And and then, you know, that doesn't include 
horses I might've just had, you know, a single ride on or just seen yes. at a clinic or something, but no, 18 horses. And of those, I think 16 of those, I did at least some quicker training with. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I so really, I, so, so sort of how did that, and so now in retrospect, I'm sort of looking back and it's like, well, okay, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. And, and I'm reminded of a story you tell when you first learned clicker training and, you know, you said you went out to do it and you just went out to the barn and you just did it and you, you were successful with it, with your horses. Yeah. And then as you went down and were teaching it, you know, you found things that other people would have issues with and that other people sometimes had. Uh, you know, like some of the mugging and some of those sorts of behaviors. And you had to think about how to teach through those, but you hadn't experienced those initially, you know, in your own, right, you, right. you, you didn't experience that, but then later you had to say, oh, okay, well, how would I work through this? And I feel like that's a little bit a corollary to this story here. We're like, I really didn't have problems and I haven't. And I'm now in another place in Kentucky I moved to a year ago. And again, I'm finding a very welcoming atmosphere. And so I'm like, okay, so what, you know, how did that happen? How, yes. how is that, you know, how, what am I doing? Not you know, necessarily intentionally, but what is what am I doing? And I think, you know, there's sort of two buckets to, uh, to ways to answer that. Um, there's one bucket that I think it's just being a guest in another barn, regardless of the discipline or the training method or the, there's just certain things that help you be welcomed or fi find a place where you want to be and help you be welcomed in other people's facilities. So there's kind of things you can do. And then I think there's a, there's another bucket of things that are more specific to being someone who does something a little different and you know how do you sort of manage that so I could start with just the very general things let's start with the very general how right. can you be welcomed because that's going to right. be relevant whether you are in this position of I don't have a horse and I want to I want to ride I want to right uh be and it's also relevant to people who board. Being, being a boarder yeah right yeah right very right. Important. absolutely absolutely um so I have Three, I came up with three, <laughs> three principles, uh, and they were uh, find fertile ground, be a good citizen, and do no harm. Those are my my three principles that I came up with for for being in in barns that are not your own backyard. And so the first one, you know, find fertile ground. What I mean by that is, you know, yes, I've found. I've had great experiences being out in, you know, more or less the mainstream horse world, but I've also been lucky. I mean, I haven't been in just any barn. Um, so even if you're not finding a barn that is a quote unquote, you know, clicker training barn or a positive reinforcement barn, there are places that are going to be more likely to be just good places to be for someone mm -hmm. who really cares about their horses. So just, you know, are the horses happy? Are the horses healthy? Are the people in this barn happy? Do yes. the people in this barn care about their horses? That's so basic, right? But like, if I were in barns where the answers to those questions were no, it's a different story. I don't think it would be, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, I've made wonderful friends and I felt welcomed and I was able to, you know, work with their, yeah. so so you know you look for barns uh if it's a professional trainer's barn you know watch them teach not just their you see the horses but even how do they teach and are they what's their you know people who are abrasive with other people are usually not pleasant with horses either and you know just are is this a place that is just a welcoming what's the energy some of this gets a little intangible but is it a barn that just feels like a good place to be in? And we've no. all, you can't describe what that looks like, but you certainly know what it is when it's not there. Yes. You know, you know what it is when it's not right. And I think many people have an experience of having been in a barn that just was not yeah, right. If you've, boarded, if you've boarded in a big public boarding barn, it can start to feel like um, you're boarding in a soap opera. Um, yeah. And so if you're, if you have that feeling that, you have just walked into a, the equine version of a soap opera, then maybe that's not a good place to be. If you're watching a lesson and 
the bulk of the comments are what somebody's doing wrong and negative and disparaging. Get after him. Get after him. uh, Making comments about, you know, uh, negative comments about the horse, you know, in some way. It just doesn't, doesn't leave you feeling as though you've been, as though the, the, the rider has been made to feel, made to feel good, made to feel worthy. Absolutely. And I think another piece of that taking references is, you know, are there some older horses who are still sound, happy, and in work in these parts? That is a really good sign. Yes. So I've now, I am now privileged to be on my third schoolmaster of my post horse owning career. You know, the first one I, I started riding when I think he was 25 and he was still doing basically all of the FEI work. Then when I went to North Carolina, uh, I found wonderful trainer, Don Weniger, who also actually was already interested in clicker training and using it in her program. So I hit the jackpot and she had uh, her former competition horse, Indy, wonderful Connemara thoroughbred mare, uh, who was at the time, she's now, I think, 28 and still in regular work. I'm now riding a horse with uh, Laura Burkett of Battle Creek Dressage in uh, Goshen, Kentucky, where I live uh, now. And uh, Jack is 25 and still doing all yeah. of the, yeah. you know, so, so when you see those sorts of horses in barns, I also think that, you know, you can ask the people, you always say, right, go to people for opinions, go to horses for answers. And yes. are you seeing horses who are, you know, and, and in the event that the training programs are different, if the outcome is a healthy, happy, sound horse, that's right, working well into their 20s. That's something I think we can all get behind, you know, yes, so, so absolutely. Um, th- that is a good piece of evidence. So in terms of the fertile ground and being able yeah. to find a facility that is going to be compatible with right. what you are comfortable with. Right. So those are some of the things that you were looking at. Looking for, looking yeah. for that. Yep, absolutely. And I would say in my, you know, anecdotal and admittedly limited experience I've found I found good success in sort of two types of barns uh barns that uh that have a trainer that are uh dressage focused barns um with someone who has a certain level of classical focus in their work um maybe they do compete and are successful but they're also concerned about their horses and and so I found that often people who kind of fall in that bucket tend to, are at least receptive to um, my interests and in having someone like me around uh, and in maybe non-training barn so more of just the regular boarding barn where it's not one person's program but uh, where we're sort of the the target market to speak in, you know, marketing professor terms, the sort of target market of the people who board there are amateurs who really love their horses and care about them, may or may not be competitive, but are invested in their horse's well-being and in their own education as horse people. Um, Those also seem to be good places to be, um, yes. whether as a boarder or whether as a, a guest uh, riding other people's horses. But, you know, and there are many, many other types of places that also fit that bucket that, that I just haven't experienced. But those, those have been my experience. So I, I realize for many people listening, you know, you, they may have very limited options. And uh, sometimes, yeah, you just don't have a lot of choice. But to the extent that you can, you know, look for those qualities of a good environment for people and a good environment for horses. Again, not even to the level of exact disciplines or exact um, approaches, but but some of these just basic. Um, yes. If, if people really love their horses and care about them, those are sort of, those are people you want to know, you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> these are, we have a lot in common. We're going to have a lot more in common than we don't. Uh, if that's the starting place. Uh, so that's the, the fertile ground. Um, the good citizen part, you know, is on the, 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 you know, you as a rider or a boarder or someone taking lessons as a student. Um, you know, I've been on both 
So I've been a boarder, I've been the person coming in for lessons, and I've also worked on a lot of farms. So I've seen sort of both sides. Um, I haven't owned a boarding farm, but I appreciate what goes into it. And it is tough. Um, owning a farm, at least boarding on its own, is really not a profitable business. The margins are three to five percent, you know. Yeah. And that's if everything goes well. So that means even though you as a client, you know, you're paying $600 a month, maybe that feels like a huge amount of money. And it is, but the person running that farm is me. They might like, they might be making $50 for all their investment and all their work. And and it's just, um, and that does not to excuse, you know, bad practices, but it's just to say, um, I think sometimes it can feel like, well, I'm spending so much money here and you are, but you'd be spending that much money keeping your horse at home anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're comparing apples to apples, if you were going to build an arena and have insurance and, and have lights or all the other things that are being provided in a boarding stable. You would, and so you would be spending much more. Much more, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think I, I just, you know, so being a good citizen is sort of having some empathy for the barn owners because it's a tough business and every client has different preferences and you know as boarders we, we all want different things and you just can't make everyone happy uh, you know so i think I, I just try to have empathy for what really goes into doing it and knowing that no place is going to be perfect there are some things that will be deal breakers obviously but just just really try to start from that place of not, you know, not so much the client is always right, but, but, and to then, you know, in the day to day, what does that mean? Well, that just means, you know, even if you're a paying boarder or especially if you're not, you know, you're really a kind of a guest in, in another facility, you know, pick up the broom and sleep the aisle if you have an extra five minutes or offer to bring in the extra horse from the paddock. Or if somebody's water is, you know, notice if a water bucket's low or, you know, just, just kind of be mindful and considerate um, about the environment. Um, you know, if you use it, clean it, put it away, you know, just, just appreciate how much goes into it. You know, wipe out the, you know, not that you'll do all these things every day, but, you know, wipe out the sink that the tech gets cleaned in or just just try to kind of put a little bit back into the system that, that yes. you're, you're coming in on because anyone who's ever run a farm or even a farm of their own, just having their horses in their backyard, the work is relentless hmm. um, yes. of, of it. It's really relentless and not all clients recognize that hmm. or, and appreciate that. And so I think even just being the kind of client or guest who, who has that mindset, you will find that, <laughs> that, things will be done for you as well in return. It's a relation, you know, you're in a relationship with the people in the barn and, and yes. you know, try try to put in a little more than you take out is, is really sort of what, what I would say uh, in, in being a good citizen. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts on, on that point, but. Um, well, and also remembering to say from time to time how. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And oh, the place yeah. looks so beautiful, or, you right. know, you, you know, some form of appreciation, because when, as you say, it's, it's a relentless job, uh, keeping a barn looking re- remotely tidy and neat and all the rest of right. it, there's always something that's you know, growing faster than you can back it back, kind right. of thing. So that remembering to say, wow, you're doing, you know, it's just so nice to be here. It's right. so, so good right. to be here. And, and similarly, if you're riding a horse that's not your own, you know, you're riding your friend's horse or someone sharing their horse with you and, you know, give the horse, obviously what you should be doing anyway, but, you know, give them a good grooming, check over their legs. Take, if you see something you're not sure about, take a picture and text it to your friend or your acquaintance and just, you know, or just say, oh boy, your tail looks a little grubby. Maybe I'll wash it out or, you know, just do a little extra. And because I also so deeply appreciate all the horses who've been shared with me and the people who share them with me and trust me um, with them. And so, you know, again, take good care of the horses and then honor, honor, because even just as an owner in a barn, we all know it's so much work and you worry and things go wrong. And, you know, if you can go, if the horse has an abscess, you know, if you can go and help 
soak one night, not just to ride, you know, you yes. sort of try to participate yes. in, mm-hmm. in the, the, that side of it, which again, for those of us who really love and appreciate horses, we, we do, you know, we can fit it into our day. We do happily as yes. well because we yeah. appreciate like, all of it. You, you think, you know, why, why do we even need to say these things? It's so obvious. And yet for those of us who've been in big boarding barns, we have absolutely seen the people who don't. And, right. uh, and I know I've seen the barn owner who, you know, when she sees certain people, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, right. Because you don't know be that, <laughs> that that you're going to be cleaning up after them, and right. so so it seems so obvious that because we're talking about things that you know that don't really even shouldn't you shouldn't even need to say them, but this is in part how you have been so successful, and where I think other people sometimes struggle to find a way to fit into a barn. You have clearly fit in beautifully to many barns. I think to one place where um, it's very useful for barn owners, for their clients to participate is when an employee or someone is sick, because that's very disruptive in a barn. You know, usually they'll have their routine and they're pretty good at it. They certainly will appreciate it if you clean up after yourself. But, you know, with someone sick, that's really disruptive. And so if everybody can pitch or quits in, on no or notice, quits, exactly. all yeah. the time. Those are times when, you know, if you raise your hand and give a hand, that's really appreciated. Right, right. right. And you've had, you know, you've <laughs> Yeah, you've managed very big herds. I mean, you, you, yeah, you know exactly this. Um, so just, yeah, being a good citizen uh, is, is a piece of it. And then the other piece uh, I think about is, uh, you know, do no harm. Uh, this is more about riding other people's horses or working with other people's horses than necessarily being in a barn, although don't, you know, don't break things in other people's <laughs> barn if you, can, if you can help it. Not that you would on purpose, but I think I also kind of realized that when I'm working with someone else's horse, Uh, I, I'm just, I'm a bit more conservative than I would be if it were my own horse or a horse that was sort of fully entrusted to me. And that doesn't mean that if it's my own horse, I'm out there, you know, to your, borrow your phrase, Alex, like riding through herds of buffalo. (laughs) Bareback and bridal doesn't mean that, but it just means that I just, you just, you just tread, tread lightly as a way. So, so, you know, you know, just, just not pushing them at all. Or maybe, you know, the horse could do something a little more or has a little bit more in them, but you just, you just sort of always erring on the side of, of a little less. And if that might mean that maybe the horse doesn't progress quite as quickly in its training or it, it that's okay, that's fine. Yeah. Or maybe he, the, the horse just doesn't, yeah, really get put through fully its paces or whatever that might mean, but, but that's the better error to make when yes. when you're particularly as an amateur working just yeah. enjoying and, other people's horses and you've been in southern states so you know i'm sure there have been days where it's been really hot and humid you're riding older horses well maybe i just don't canter today right right or they take a little funny step and you just you know okay yeah. we're gonna you know we're back off stop. here yeah. or um or even just, you know, when I'm clicker training other horses and I'm thinking about, well, what might I teach this horse? And if it's not a horse, you know, being clicker trained all the time with all of its people, you know, well, I'm not, there's certain behaviors I'm just not going to teach um, because it's, is this behavior, if this is offered, is that safe? Is that a good thing? You know, so, um, so just being uh, conservative and, and again, and that's also a safety thing too, because if I have my own horse and I have an error in judgment, uh, about what might be safe on any day, I could get hurt and that's not good for me right. or for my horse, but it's sort of my problem, right? But I really don't want that. I mean, to, to the extent I possibly can avoid that. Uh, I'm very careful about that with, with other people's horses. I think it's very relevant, the clicker training, because it's, you know it's what you're saying. I don't want to teach something that is going to get the horse into trouble. So for example, if I teach the horse headlowing, which is one of the foundation lessons, very important behavior to teach. Right. And the horse learns, really catches on fast and says, oh, human, let me drop my head because I'm sure you'll reinforce me for that. 
And then the owner comes in or the barn help comes in and doesn't understand that this behavior has been reinforced, has been taught, and is confused by the fact that this horse is flinging his head to the ground. <laughs> and the horse yeah. gets penalized for offering a behavior that you have taught. So you've got to work in a way that, yes, you can teach all of these things, but you've got to be mindful of keeping everything in balance so the horse doesn't get into trouble. And also, I would think, staying connected with his other people so they understand right. what he's doing. Right. Absolutely that. Uh, and this is a nice segue, I think, into the more you know clicker-specific Yes. Uh, yes. principles that I have. And this is very much in that bucket. And so I, I kind of have more, more I'd say about that. I will say, before, just in case we go on a different thread and we lose it. Um, so absolutely, I am very mindful about what are the behaviors that I might teach to a horse who I am doing clicker training with, but who is not otherwise in the clicker po program and who I might only see once in a while anyway. I'm not, you know, so, so clicker training isn't this horse's daily life or bread and butter. No. So I'm very mindful of the behaviors to your points. Um, I will though say that I have, I have found and others may have different experience that they are very good at knowing who speaks yes. quicker and who doesn't. I, I yes. have really not run into, and I'm sure it could happen. So I, I don't, don't want to sort of send someone on the wrong path, but I really have not run into horses offering lots of things that I've taught them to other people and having that be an issue. And, and I sort of, I guess I've come to think about it, like speaking a foreign language. So, you know, Dominique, you're bilingual and, and, and so am I, so you speak French, I speak Italian, but I'm not speaking Italian with you today. And you're not speaking French with us today because you know that we speak English mm -hmm. and, and vice versa. And and I think the horses that kind of, it, it, they, they get that to, you know, well, for many of them. And again, I'm talking, not talking about horses who are really extreme in their behavior. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of staying within a, let's say a, the more the middle of the bell shaped curve yeah. that you talk about. And again, staying within very reasonable types of behaviors, but uh, it hasn't really been an issue. But you're the, you're the context. You are the context for clicker training. I'm the context. But they yes. may want to test if you're that if you're that person or not, you know, in order for them to know, okay, I can speak Italian with Sarah uh, and French with Dominique, but you know, I may have to try it out to know that. Now right. you've said to me, but you know, right. Um, so they they may try it out and see, okay, this person right. is not um a clicker trainer and it's not useful right. for me I won't you know there's no effect if I try if I use right. my behavior to get treats with this person it won't work so it'll right. go in a quick extinction unless unless the person you know or some group is interested and has right. rewarded it and then another groom is not and has punished it and then you're more in a situation but you know I understand if what, what you mean right. that they Dogs are like that too, right? They'll know who they can play right. with, who they cannot play with, who's not interested, who they shouldn't. And we all have clicker trained dogs who other people don't clicker train, you know, and it doesn't really seem to be an issue. Yeah. And even in a household, you may have someone right. where the dog will go systematically when they want to play and they know if they try yeah. someone else, they'll get yelled at, you know, because they or just ignore. ignore. <laughs> <laughs> or just ignore. Yeah. 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 So Sarah, when you're yeah. becoming known within a barn and you're starting to do more than just uh, pet the nice horsey, um, yeah. how do you begin to, how do you open that conversation about clear right. training? This is such an important question. We've all been there. We're with other horse people and of of course we want to talk about clicker training, but I know from the many conversations I've had with people at clinics that doing so has very often gotten them into trouble. Instead of people being interested in 
what they are trying to share, they've had doors slammed in their faces. So I'm particularly interested in Sarah's answer to this question. She hasn't had doors slammed in her face. Instead, she's been invited in to clicker train the horses she's riding. So what is she doing that has opened those doors? And what is it that she can share that may help the rest of us talk to others about clicker training in a more productive way? So next time, we're going to begin with this question. So, you know, I usually use this space to let you know what's coming up, and this is no exception. Science Camp is just around the corner. That's over Labor Day weekend. That's always exciting. Uh, anytime that we have an opportunity to get together with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz and Mary Hunter, and this year, as always, Michaela Hempen is going to be joining us. It's going to be just phenomenal. And I suspect coming out of science camp that I'm going to have lots of fun things that I'm going to want to share with uh, here in the podcast. And then right after that, for me, is the next virtual clinic. And that begins September 10th. That clinic is going to look at the details of rope handling. It's such an important part of the training. You can have a wonderful theoretical understanding of the training but be tripping over your own two feet when it comes to working with the horses. And so that handling skills are definitely part of being a good equine clicker trainer. I think there are still a couple of spaces left in that clinic, so if you're interested, do take a look at the details in my website. That's at theclickercenter.com. In the virtual clinics, we can really zoom in and there's no pun intended there since we use the Zoom platform, but we can really zoom in on the details that make a difference to the horses. And that's what we're going to be doing in the rope handling clinic. And the great advantage to the virtual clinics is you don't have to travel. You're working with your horse in his home environment. So that clinic, again, on the rope handling begins on September 10th. We meet for one session per day over two weekends, and in between during the week, you can get feedback on what you're doing with your horses with a video that you send in. These clinics are a great way to connect with the clicker training community, and I hope you come join me at one of these clinics. And then next week, we're going to connect again with the continuation of our conversation with Sarah Meany. So until then, have fun with your training.